Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. Well, today in our Catechism class, we look at Lord's Day 45b in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're talking about the marrow of our prayers. Psalm 145, verse 18 to 20 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. In our last catechism class, we looked at why God wants us to pray. It does seem strange, I suppose, that when God is sovereign and when he has ordained all things, that he would require us to ask him for his blessings. And yet we must, because conversation with God in prayer is just one aspect of our thankfulness, which we are required to demonstrate in response to our salvation. And of course prayer is good for us, for it aids our Christian growth and it brings glory to Almighty God. So having answered that most basic question of all, why should we pray? The Catechist then teaches us about what God wants to hear from us when we pray, what pleases him, what he listens to. So question 117 in the Heidelberg Catechism asks... What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him? And there are three answers to this question which the Catechist, our instructor, wants us to learn. The first of those is that prayer involves humble obedience to the Scriptures. First, says the Catechist, we must from the heart call upon the true God only who has revealed himself in his word for all that he has commanded us to pray. Now this can easily be understood in three very simple statements. That prayer should be heartfelt, that prayer should be carefully directed, and that prayer should always follow God's commands given to us in his word. Let's look at those individually. Prayer should always be heartfelt. In John chapter 4 and verse 23, Jesus said, The hour is coming and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So our instructor tells us that our prayers must come from the heart. Now this is an important lesson for us. Sometimes there's a temptation to be insincere in prayer, simply by praying to the audience rather than to God praying so that others will hear us and that they will applaud us for our great ability in prayer. Jesus himself warned us about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He pointed to the Pharisees who loved to pray standing in the streets so that they could be seen by others who presumably would then praise them for their great piety. Jesus called them hypocrites and he warned his disciples against being like them. 
in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. We read, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So prayer should be heartfelt. But prayer should also be carefully directed. We're only to pray to the one true God, never to anyone else. We're not to pray to saints or to angels or to statues or to images or to the Virgin Mary. We're to pray to God, our Heavenly Father, and we're to pray in the name of Jesus, God's Son, with the help and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So if we want to know how to avoid error in directing our prayers, we find that God is revealed to us in the Scriptures. The Catechist adds, Call upon the one true God only, who has revealed himself in his word. Search the Scriptures. Find out who God really is and direct your prayers to him. And the third item of obedience is that prayer should follow God's commands given to us in his word. He does in his word tell us what we're to pray about. For example, in James 1 and verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So when we pray, we don't pray frivolously. Read the word of God and return God's word to him in prayer. If you are in any doubts about how to do this, then obtain for yourself a copy of Matthew Henry's book, A Way to Pray, published by Banner of Truth. The author goes through a whole series of topics for prayer, and he teaches us how to include the scriptures in our prayers. For example, when he praises God for his eternity and for his foreknowledge, he prays, You are the King of Ages, eternal, immortal, invisible. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God, the same yesterday and today and forever. All of those petitions are firmly grounded in God's word. You can find an online version of the book at www.matthewhenry.org. Not only does prayer involve humble obedience to the scriptures, but prayer also involves true repentance from all of our sins. The Catechist says, second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery, so that we may humble ourselves before God. So we must understand our true nature. When we come before God in prayer, we must come remembering that by nature we are sinners. Not just that we have sinned, and that's obvious, but that underlying our sinful acts and words and thoughts is a deeply sinful nature, a tendency to sin against which we must struggle with God's help until we reach heaven. The Catechist uses two words to describe this underlying innate sinful rebellion. He talks about need and misery. 
How wonderfully descriptive of our human nature that is, our true need and our awful misery. No matter what our list of needs may be, and we tend to come before God with a long list of requests, prayers for our families and our friends who are ill, our churches, our greatest need of all, despite all of that, is the need for forgiveness. And that remains our need right throughout life. What is the catechist referring to when he talks about our awful misery? This section of the catechism is about our grateful response to our salvation. It's about living the Christian life. So why does the catechist want to talk about misery? Is it true then that Christians should always look miserable? Well, some do, of course. But the misery of the Christian is not the unproductive fatalistic misery of the person without hope who is trusting in the world. The misery of the Christian is that gut-wrenching, conscience-stricken grieving that occurs in the believer's heart after sin. The misery which leads to repentance and forgiveness and joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9 to 11. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. It's not enough to know our true need and our awful misery. We must know it thoroughly. The catechist is convinced that we must be well acquainted with our need and our misery or we may not take it seriously enough. And so being fully aware of our need to repent of all of our sins, we must humble ourselves before God. That's the object of all this comprehensive, earnest, soul-searching. That we must lower ourselves right into the very dirt, metaphorically speaking, before the God who is Almighty. Prostrate ourselves before him, that we may decrease, that he may have the preeminence in all things. We must thoroughly know our need and misery, so that we may humble ourselves before God. So prayer involves humble obedience to the scriptures, And prayer involves true repentance from our sins. And prayer, finally, involves confident trust in God's willingness and ability to answer. The Catechist says, third, we must rest on this firm foundation, that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 to 15, John says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. The Catechist reaffirms the fact that we do not ever deserve God's favour. We do not deserve to have God even listen to our prayers, let alone answer them. Yet amazingly he does, not because of us, but because of Jesus. That's what gives us the confidence to know that God always hears our prayers and he always answers them. The answer may not be what we want, of course. 
I couldn't count the amount of times I went to my earthly father and asked him for something, and he said no. He still answered, even though his answer wasn't what I expected or desired. Still, that was his answer, and I had to live with it. God is our Heavenly Father, and he always knows what is ultimately best for us, and he always sees far more than we see. So he answers according to his will, and in this we have confidence in him. James 1 and verse 6 But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So these three are the marrow of our prayers. Repentance, humility, and confidence in God. <laughs> 